Please be seated. In two weeks, we're going to begin a new series in the book of Habakkuk. Uh, but for the next two weeks, we're going to look at a couple of uh, subjects. One is the, the high cost of discipleship, and then next week, the high cost of community. The high cost of uh, discipleship, of following after the Lord uh, this morning. I think all of us would uh, agree that there are many things in our own lives and in the world that we would attach or assign a high value uh, things like the marriage relationship or bearing and raising of uh, children, uh, the life of the body of Christ and our Lord's provision uh, for his people, perhaps certain uh, civil liberties we would assign a high value to, our own personal integrity and character, our health, uh, physical life itself has a high, high value. All of these things have a uh, a value we would assign to them, and therefore they at times call us to risk or sacrifice in order to preserve them, to protect them. Uh, a person may have to risk their job in order to maintain their own character, being a person of their word, integrity. A person may have to sacrifice their own interests or personal pursuits in order to provide for their family. Yet this morning, as we turn to a central passage regarding the high cost of discipleship in Mark chapter 8, we hear words from our Lord Jesus that highlight something more valuable than any of the things I've mentioned, including more valuable than life itself. That is, this physical, temporary, earthly life. And so I turn our attention to Mark chapter 8, it's verses 34 uh, to 38. I'm sure familiar words to many of us. Listen now to God's word. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus' words center on, on the worth of following him, the high cost of discipleship. Most of the time, certainly often, people don't have to choose between following Christ and risking their own well-being. But sometimes they do. When Christ first called those early disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John, later the Apostle Paul, they had to weigh the cost, the risk potential, in their case of dropping everything, not only calling themselves a disciple, a Christian, a follower of Christ, but then following him full time in ministry and facing the potential of suffering, persecution, uh, perhaps even death itself. But still today, we have to consider the cost, 
the risk potential to our own well-being of being a follower of Christ. The language that Jesus uses here, some call his sort of spiritual economics. You see it in the language and words such as profit and forfeit. Gain, loss, saving a life, losing a life. And important in this language that our Lord is using is his teaching that you cannot have Christ as a savior if you do not have Christ as Lord and ruler. Because in order to follow after Christ and be saved, one must, to use Jesus' own words, lose his life for Christ and his gospel. Whatever you understand, whatever Jesus means by the necessity here of losing one's life in order to save it, it's certainly not a partial kind of investment. It's not a minor kind of demand. This is not like a down payment. Put down 10 or 20%, you can obtain the car or move into the house. It's not like taxes in which the government requires a portion of your income. It's total in demand. To save one's life, the condition is the totality of one's life. It requires the loss of one's life. As he says, whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. That's following Christ as Lord. Now let us be very clear. Jesus is not calling for perfect followers. He's not calling for a sinless life. But he's driving home the point of allegiance to his lordship. Who or what is lord of your life? Who or what is driving your life? Driving your purpose, your identity, the motives. Who, we might say, is in the driver's seat of your life? Now, there were, there were two times in my life where I was very up close to a commercial, the cockpit of a commercial jet. One of them was as a young boy. I remember about eight or ten years old, and we were boarding the plane, uh, probably aisle 15 to 20. I'm sitting in the aisle seat, and uh, people are still putting their bags away, and I, I'm looking up kind of curious as a young boy, what, what's going on in the cockpit? And all of a sudden, a head turns around, and it was one of the pilots, and he gave me one of these. Come on up. This is probably the late, mid to late 80s at this time. And uh, I don't remember asking for permission from my parents. Boom, I was there. And what a wonder, what a, an experience to sit in a, in a commercial jet uh, cockpit. Fast forward about 30 years, and it's 2017. And our family is boarding a flight, international flight, eventually headed to Uganda uh, for a short-term mission. I've got my own uh, young children now. And as we were boarding, the pilot was greeting uh, people as they were coming on. and he identified our children, and I remember him saying, inviting them right into the cockpit. And I was shocked by that, given that it's 2017. This is post-9-11 with all this, the security. And uh, they could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think all of them got to sit in the cockpit. The pilot was having a wonderful time. He's laughing. I thought five to seven minutes, hands on the wheel, feet on the pedals. They're pushing buttons. Sounds are going off. And uh, I'm thinking, kind of smiling, but thinking, I'm glad we're at the gate on the ground. Right. The picture of children in the cockpit of a commercial jet is kind of cute, kind of endearing, isn't it? As long as the plane is at the gate. But 
That same picture, when the jet is at 35,000 feet headed toward turbulence, that's a nightmare. You don't want me in the cockpit. You don't want children in the cockpit. But the picture is far worse for any person seeking to pilot their own life apart from Christ. Because it's not only in so often as a mess in this temporary life, but it leads to an eternal destruction. An eternal destruction in the next. The, the message Jesus gives is a heavy and weighty one. His words are heavy. He's saying, if you don't give up the pilot's seat, you're going to lose your life. Which is why, two different times in verse 34, where we have the conditions for discipleship, he uses this language in which he is in the front and his disciples are behind. If anyone would come after me, be behind me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow. So that Christians are fundamentally followers. We're followers of the Lord. And in this verse, Jesus gives us the conditions for becoming a disciple and continuing to live as a disciple. Yet as we think about these conditions, the context here in Mark is almost as important as the words themselves. Mark has strategically situated these words and the larger structure of his gospel to drive home all the more the costliness, the value of being a disciple. Who is Jesus speaking to here in verse 34? We might immediately think, well, he's speaking about those who profess faith in him and to the disciples, perhaps the 12. But if you look at verse 34 carefully, it says, calling the crowd to him with his disciples. So he's not just addressing the 12 or beyond that, those who profess faith in him, but he wants the crowds, he wants the masses to listen in and hear his teaching. Well, why does he do this? I think it's because he wants to make clear the difference between taking an interest in the Lord Jesus and being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. A major emphasis in Mark's gospel are the miracles of Jesus. That's a distinctive of Mark's gospel. It's a high emphasis in it. Beginning in chapter 1, chapter after chapter, we hear of the miracles of Christ, the calming of the storm, the healing of many diseases. Chapter after chapter, the feeding of the 4,000 and then the 5,000. And then it reaches this height and this kind of climax in the 8th chapter in which Peter then confesses Jesus as the Christ. Indeed, you are the Christ. That people were at, Jesus said, who, who do people say I am? And then he turns to his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter gives this great confession. And it's at that very point in Mark's gospel, in the verses just preceding ours, I think in verse 31, that for the first time in Jesus' teaching to his disciples, he tells them he must suffer at the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees, and that he must be crucified. And Peter pulls them aside and rejects him, rejects this notion. But then he says, not only must I be crucified, that's when he then provides the text we are considering. You also must, in a way, bear a cross like me. He wants the crowds to hear that. Those large crowds who have been interested, perhaps even fascinated by 
uh, this miracle worker, whose stomachs had been filled by his supernatural power, are now hearing the hard conditions, the high cost, if they would continue after him. So we should note the uniqueness of Jesus' approach in ministry. I think it's the, the opposite of the way we naturally think. As Jesus becomes more popular, the crowds increase in size. He doesn't widen the gate. He doesn't make it easier. It's the opposite. The crowds increase. His popularity increases. The message becomes more intense. The gate, in a way, more narrow. And yet, as we consider these conditions, self-denial, cross-bearing, following after, we recognize these sound hard. Hard. If these are the condition, the conditions for saving one's life, not losing it, it sounds greatly difficult. But I think we can go a step further and say it's not just difficult. It's impossible. With man... This is impossible in our natural state. Two chapters later, Jesus is going to say to his disciples how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And then they ask, how then can man be saved? With man, this is impossible. But not with God. And so when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He's not telling us how this happens, what the cause of this discipleship is, or the cause of salvation. We know the ultimate cause is the grace of God. For it is by grace you have been saved, and it's not of yourselves. He's not giving us the cause of our salvation. He's giving us the conditions If anyone is going to be a disciple, this must be true. This must occur. These are the conditions to become a disciple and to continue living as a disciple. So if anyone would come after me, he's saying, let him deny himself. There's the first condition, self-denial. What does Jesus mean by self-denial? Perhaps we... Uh, would benefit by saying what he does not mean. Self-denial is not a denial of your personality. The psalmist says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. If you are more outgoing or you're more reserved, if you're tall or you're short, if you're more left-brain sort of analytical thinking, or right brain artistic. These are all ways that God himself has had a hand in your life to shape and form you as a human being, as one made in his image. His hand was in that. But there is a part of our life that God did not author. We could say there's a self within ourselves that is to be renounced, denied. That's the old self, the sin condition, the sinful self, that self which is present in every human soul. That is to be denied. And to deny oneself is to relinquish the throne of our heart. 
right, to surrender that to one who is all good, all glorious, and all gracious, who will take that rightful place within our heart. I think important and applicable here is that self-denial is not self-mastery. There can be a natural response to Jesus' words and thinking that I just need to get it together more. I need to exercise greater discipline spiritually in the most godly way. I think that's a natural response. But self-denial goes beneath that. It's more fundamental than that. It's not mere outward behavioral change, however godly and spiritual that may be. I think it is pictured very well in Jesus' parable of the tax collector and Pharisee. There in Luke 18, Jesus speaks about these two men who go up to the temple to pray. One very religious, a Pharisee. He stands up with, with pride, looks up to heaven and says, Lord, thank you that I'm not like other men, for I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have. What is this Pharisee doing but looking to his own self-righteousness to give him confidence about his standing before God. But then you have the tax collector, head down, standing far off. And he beats his breast. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went away justified. So self-denial is not self-improvement. It's recognizing I have a fundamental problem. I have a self within myself that needs to be torn down. First and foremost in coming to Christ and daily. I cannot do this of my own accord. I need a gracious Savior to take his rightful place. John Owen said mortification, that is putting to death from a self-strength, carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. It's not merely gripping harder to be more disciplined. It begins with that broken and contrite heart. That's where the Lord desires for us to be repeatedly in an ongoing way. That's self-denial. Then you have a second condition, which is bearing the cross. Jesus said, I will suffer and be crucified. Now you must take up your cross. What does it mean to bear your cross? What do we know about crosses? We know that they were a brutal means of Roman execution. A person was nailed to a cross, hoisted up, left to suffocate and die. If it took too long, they would break the legs of the criminal, of the individual. It was horrific. So that as we think about Jesus telling us that we are to bear our own cross, what are the implications of that? One, we might say it, it means official opposition. Or it could mean official opposition. Crosses were not the result of mob violence. They were a formal means of execution for criminals. Perhaps Jesus is saying, you need to be prepared to be treated like a criminal. Two, this was a public display of shame. 
People were stripped. They were beaten. They were hung up for all to see. So to follow Christ and his cross-bearing is not merely a, a private decision, but a public matter. Be prepared to be shamed. Three, it meant suffering and death. It's not random suffering. As Jesus says, it's for my sake, as he says, for my sake and the gospel's. How counter the culture is this kind of participation, this kind of membership? You think about all the memberships out there. Grocery stores, Costco, gyms, you can get a, a membership at such a low cost monthly, right? 10, 20 bucks to, to, to be able to participate, be a member of a gym. And, and, and they don't even care if you come. Just give us the monthly payment we won't even check in. <laughs> Very low cost. Uh, this membership costs everything. Everything. But we see it's worth everything. Jesus does not call people to follow him, to deny themselves, to take up their cross for no reason. Nor does he call people to do it because it's merely the right thing to do. He doesn't speak that way. He doesn't just give commands. He gives also reasons and the motivations and the incentives why it's worth pursuing. That's what you have in verses 35 to 38. Why following is worth it. And you can identify the reasons. They're all set off by the word for. Repeatedly. For, verse 36, whoever would save his life Verse 35, verse 36, for what does it profit a man? 37, for what can a man give in return for his soul? Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me. There are your motives and reasons. I just want to emphasize verse 35. For, there's the motive, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. So grasp the mind of our Lord here. There is a saving of life that leads to losing life. And there's a losing of life for Christ that leads to saving your life. So his argument is this. You don't want to lose your life, so do not try and save it. You do not want to lose your life, so do not try and save it. What does he mean by a saving that leads to losing? I think it means the opposite of what it is to carry your cross. Seeking to save your life is seeking the opposite life of a cross-bearing one. It's to live a cross-free life. That life is ultimately lost. So if one seeks to save their life, it's going to look opposite to bearing the cross. So if the cross means potential opposition, as we've noted, then trying to save one's life might mean Seeking acceptance. 
the, the lure, the temptation to be acceptable in this world, to be embraced by the world. If the cross means potential shame, trying to save one's life, we might say, means seeking glory. I need glory. I need to be known as important. If the cross means suffering, trying to save one's life means comfort, the pursuit after a comfortable life. And if the cross means death, Trying to save one's life means the pursuit after safety. I need to be safe. But what does it mean then to lose one's life for Christ? This is to pick up their cross. Accept opposition. Accept shame. Accept suffering. Accept death. Then they will be saved. We're not pursuing or seeking these things, opposition, shame, suffering, death. But we need to be prepared. We need to count that cost. Significant in verse 35 is that the first and the second words for save, what those represent, mean two different things. Notice, for whoever would save his life, meaning This temporary, earthly life. That's what he's referring to. If anyone would seek to save this earthly life, they're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. That saving is not this temporary life, but eternal life. We hear very similar words from our Lord in John 12, 25. He says, Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world because of the fall, because of sin, will keep it for eternal life. Jesus' words should cause the hearer to draw a very clear conclusion that in order to follow him, he cannot be second to anything or to anyone in this life. His presence, His grace, His word is more precious. It's more worthy than life, temporal earthly life itself. I remember as a a youth seeing an illustration in which our our youth director, perhaps you've seen this before, took a glass jar and he filled it and packed it in with sand all the way to the top. And then he put a golf ball on top and tried to close the lid and of course it, it wouldn't close. He removed the golf ball, removed the sand, and then he put the golf ball in first. And then he put the rest of the sand, the same amount of sand, into the jar, and he was able to close it. Now, maybe young people can try this later today. I don't know how that was done. Uh, I'm sure there's some science behind it. But the point was made very clear. When Christ and his kingdom are secondary, it doesn't work. It doesn't fit. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He is to be Lord, our supreme Lord in life. We may hear our Lord's very heavy words of self-denial, cross-bearing, 
more as a burden. Onerous. It just sounds hard. But we need to remember the same Lord who said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, is also the one who says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm humble in heart. My yoke is easy. The same one who calls us to these hard conditions is the one who sets forth that path that is a light burden. It's easy in that way. Because coming after Christ, while heavy, a hard calling, it's the easy path. It's the light burden. Why is that? Because it is with Him. It's the only way, it's the only path of life in which we are with Him. And with Him is grace sufficient. Our Lord is worth the cost of all things. The missionary Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we thank you for uh, your powerful and, and penetrating grace in our lives, calling us to yourselves. Lord, what a precious and worthy thing it is to be counted among your children and disciples. Lord, we thank you for your presence, that you walk with us and before us, that we, we have you as Savior from our sins, and we have you as Lord and ruler over our lives. Father, we pray that we would live with a kind of self-abandon for your glory and your wonderful purposes. Would you continue, Lord, to be faithful to us, grow us in being faithful to you, that we would know the depth of your, your mercy, your sufficient grace in our lives. We pray, O oh Lord, for your hand of care and comfort over us as a congregation. Would you lead us as we press into this new year? Would you be with us uh, as our Lord and our shepherd to sustain us, to give us wisdom, to give us vision, Lord, to give us courage to live uh, as followers of Jesus Christ. For that high calling, we give you praise. For your grace, we give you thanks. And we offer this in Jesus' name. Amen.